This is a Federal News Network podcast. The 13th Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, or FATARA scorecard, might be the last of its kind. House Oversight and Reform Subcommittee on Government Operations members plan to revamp the biannual agency-by-agency scorecard. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller covers what those changes might look like. And Jason, let's start with the latest FATARA scorecards in the first place. How did agencies do? In many ways, Tom, this year, this scorecard looked a lot like the last scorecard, right? There were Two, two agencies with A's, one from the last time in, in July of 2021. Ten agencies received B's, just like last time. Twelve agencies received C's, just like last time. And, you know, last time in, in July, one agency received a D. This time, no agencies received a D. And for the last about six scorecards, no agencies received an F. So, uh, as Jerry Conley says, the congressman from uh, Virginia and also the chairman of the Subcommittee on Government Operations, it's it's kind of stagnated. And, you know, to the credit for the National Science Foundation, who received an A+, and the USAID received an A, they get, obviously, good kudos to them for their work there. But really, a lot of the grades, you know, they stayed the same. And, and I think that's really what we're talking about here is, is why it's time for a change, because you need to jumpstart it. You need to get them, th- get agencies thinking differently, because maybe, and I'll say that maybe, Tom, it's it's a little too much of a of a checkbox these days and new data, new information, new metrics can really push them to rethink how they're meeting the goals. Yeah, it sounds like they're getting diminishing returns on the same questions if the scores are starting to look so repetitive. So what are some of the suggested changes Connolly and others have in mind? Well, let me start with the thank goodness column and say the data center consolidation and, and optimization category it looks like it's going to be retired. And Tom, this has been a debate for about eight years. What's the definition of a data center? Why can't we get, come to agreement on the right definition of a data center? Uh, I just have to say, I, I, I was getting a little tired of hearing that back and forth. It's not that it's not important, but but for me, it's like, just come to a decision, come together, figure this out, because every Fatara hearing has had it. Well, uh, agencies improved their scores. Every agency received an A on the data center consolidation and optimization category. And basically, GAO and the committee both have said, okay, maybe it's time to move on from that. So I think that one goes away. I think some of the other areas that they've talked about of improving the scorecard is around, okay, the cyber metrics. Uh, Right now, they really look at the Federal Information Security Management Act, FISMA grades from IGs, uh, GAO does, and they kind of look at the report to Congress and they use that to say, okay, how are agencies doing with cybersecurity? And both CIOs who testified, Ann Duncan from the Energy Department and Guy Cavallo from OPM, as well as former CIOs like Richard Spires, who was over at IRS and DHS, and Suzette Kent, the former federal CIO, all said it doesn't necessarily reflect on how well agencies are doing or not doing with cybersecurity. So I think you'll see some changes around cybersecurity. And then finally, Tom, one other area that, that got a lot of attention was around customer experience, customer service. We have the executive order from the administration. You have... Uh, legislation from Congress, 21st Century Idea Act, as an example. So I think that one also will, how are agencies serving citizens and how to rate those? And even Suzette Kent, the former federal CIO, talked about there are metrics being used by industry in different industry sectors that can apply to government that that we could borrow from them. So I think those are some of those areas that you, you, I think, will see a big change. Yeah, so they basically need to modernize the way they look at industry, the way they look at agencies, simply because really the technology has moved on thanks to the cloud and so forth. It's It seems like an obsolete measuring system then. 
in many ways, agencies have have improved the way they are serving citizens. We saw that throughout the pandemic. You know, Tom, how many interviews have you done? Have I done of talking about how much the pandemic forced agencies to rethink their approaches? And I think what the Congress wants them to do and what GAO is really pushing them toward is, okay, okay, you say it's better, prove it. Uh, and let's come up with a set of metrics that can show, hey, we're moving these systems to the cloud or giving services that, that are better services. The, the, you know, it's not just about uptime, but it's about you know, reducing backlogs and reducing time that citizens have to go on this website and enter their your name and address and other information that is, can be shared across the government. I think that, that's a big piece of it. And, and then, Tom, I think the other piece is those expectations are much higher. We hear this all the time, and I think it's a little trite these days, but people want to be served like they do in the private sector. Now, the private sector is far from perfect, but they, you know, the, there's this feeling of why do I need to, why, why can't there be cookies, as an example, on my this website that remembers my name and my address and, and other information that is commonly known, that's commonly used by a lot of different agencies. And so then the committee had that hearing. What else do they think is going to be important? What are they going to be looking at in the coming year? It's kind of a fresh start with a new calendar year for Congress. The big thing that I think the committee is really going to focus on and really push agencies toward is this transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions, or EIS, program that GSA runs. 15 of 24 agencies received failing grades, and that really knocked off a lot of agencies down a whole letter grade. For instance, the General Services Administration, which runs EIS out of their Federal Acquisition Service, their CIO grades got a whole letter grade down because they did were not close to meeting GSA's own requirement to move at least 90% of transition to EIS by March of 2022. So, you know, just about a month and a half away. In fact, a lot of agencies got about less than 54% of their transition to EIS underway. So I think that's a big concern for them. And I think that's going to be an area where the, the committee and OMB are going to have to come down a lot harder. And the question comes back around during the committee hearing last week was why? Why are agencies struggling? And Carol Harris from the GAO actually said one of the big things that she sees is it's not a priority for them. A lot of agencies are kind of dragging their feet because they're not getting pushed by anybody. I think it came up later on in the hearing that the other issue, and I think this is much more important than not a priority, because I think it is, Tom, but they don't have the workforce skill sets to help make this transition happen more quickly. I think so many agencies are missing these skill sets, or they don't have enough of the people with the skill sets to make this transition happen. I think it's much more difficult than, than I think Congress OMB and others really uh, understand it to be. But the general feeling, though, or the general goal here is that to get to the EIS services will enable agencies to get to that next level of customer experience, customer service. Am I right on that one? You are, because so much of the modernizing the network means delivering better services, delivering better customer experience, and more secure, more reliable. At the same time, Tom, it's not that agencies are, are saying it's not important. They just, it's again, as Carol Harris said, it's a priority issue and it's a skill set issue. So Fatara is going to be superseded by EIS and customer experience. It's going to be an exciting period ahead, Jason. Absolutely. And I think it's going to be key to say how to get everyone agreed. And, and will GAO and the committee bring in the CIO council, bring in OMB so they can, for lack of a better word, Tom, negotiate what those new metrics look like? I think that's really the key to making real progress. If it's a, you will do this, 
type of thing, then I think its agencies are going to be harder to get on on board. I, I give credit to Jerry Conley. He understands the power of Fatara, and I think he will be inclusive to bring an OMB in the CIO Council. So I think that's something else to watch out for, how, how that all comes together over the next six months or so. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Check out his reporter's notebook now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um 
uh, interview and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.